Welcome to Talking to Myself, our podcast where we read self-help books and discuss how they apply to our lives, to our work, to our relationships, etc. I'm Elizabeth Monson. I'm Elizabeth Meyer. And this week we read The Hard Thing About Hard Things, Building a Business When There Are No No Easy Answers by Ben Horowitz. So Meyer, do you want to give us an overview of the book? So this book is real talk about actual problems and issues entrepreneurs face using the context of his own experiences. And these are not idealized situations. Ben talks really candidly about what to do when everything goes wrong and you're the only person who can make it right. And all the while, he integrates quotes from rappers like Nas and Kanye West. So clearly, this is not your traditional how to make it as a CEO manifesto. Right. At the beginning, he even says, or in the intro, he says that his issue with management books is that they kind of address things when things are going well. And this is all about how to handle situations when they go completely south. So you actually recommended this book for our podcast. Is there any specific reason that you thought this would be a good addition to our lineup? So I've seen a few recommendations for the book from people that I respect. And so that's why it piqued my interest. And also I felt like the title really drew me in, if I'm going to be honest. Um, Obviously Ben Horowitz is an extremely successful entrepreneur. So he has a lot of high quality advice and experience. Um, But the place that I saw this recommended Emily Weiss from the CEO of Glossier. She talks about it a lot. Yeah, she talks about it a lot. And so I thought it would be interesting for us to read. And I really liked it. Have you ever read a management book before? I think this might be my first. And it's it's funny to start with an unconventional one like this because I don't think you can ever go back. He's just so brutally honest. Yeah, so I think, I mean, this does stand apart a little bit because it is our first, like, quote-unquote, management-style self-help book. Obviously, self-help has a lot of different categories within the category. And up until now, we've been reading kind of psychological or more, I don't know. A little bit I'm going to say like spiritual. I was going to say fluffy, but that's kind of rude. <laughs> but this one is more business oriented, which I also, I love as a category because I feel like I'm constantly trying to improve myself in the business world also. Um, just like quickly, how would you rate this kind compared to the other kinds we've been reading? I thought this was such a great read. I think part of it was just that he has a really good authentic voice. So everything that he wrote and every piece of information that he gave felt genuine because he does talk about mistakes that he makes. It's really human. Mm-hmm. He also talks about situations that I think everybody can identify with. He's He uses a lot of his own case studies. Right. But... He's surprisingly so, candid. He's really with a lot candid. Of information, he, which and, is great. And he's talking about the the tech sector, which I think does apply to us. But even beyond that, there are so many things that he talks about in the realm of people and management and leadership and situations that you'll find in any type of business. Mm-hmm. I thought this was a great read. I actually want to read it again at some point because he gave so much good advice that I'd like to just start to integrate a little bit more into my my work approach. Well, I'm sure you'll be able to. Did you read it or did you listen? I listened to this on Audible again. 
Shout out to Audible. Shout out to Audible. If you want to sponsor uh, our I'm podcast. Like a little embarrassed every time I say that I don't read my podcast books. Actually, ha- why is that embarrassing? This is a I had to read auditory the last medium <laughs> because they weren't available on Audible. So I should write them a note, a strongly worded note. Yeah. How about you? How would you rate this? I thought it was great. I did think. I mean, it definitely applies to the tech sector in a really strong way. I think it might be hard to understand some of what's going on if you had zero understanding of startup culture or technology, just because he does get kind of specific in terms of the companies that he was working with and how they're very platform-based and the important roles at a tech company. Um, So I think if you, yeah, if you had zero familiarity with that industry, it might be kind of confusing, although I can't speak from experience, obviously. And I also thought that he, it's almost positioned as like a how to build a company. And I'm not in a position right now when I'm, where I'm actually building a company. So I was a little bit worried that it would go too much in that direction and I wouldn't necessarily be able to take so much out of it. So if you're building a company right now, 100% read this book, it would be extremely valuable. But that aside, I feel like there was a lot to take away from it and a lot to incorporate into my everyday and even in my kind of, you know, like near-term planning. And when he does talk about some of those other bigger motifs, like like how to be a good leader or mm-hmm. how to have difficult conversations, you know, how to lay somebody off, he isn't only speaking from his own experience. He actually integrates lots of what other people say. He uses other management books. He uses other really venerated CEOs and leaders in the tech industry. So I I think that he makes it more relatable in a sense when he brings in other big key players that people recognize. Like he talks a lot about, you know, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook and Jeff Bezos of Amazon and Larry Page of Google. So these are all big companies. Look at you name dropping these CEOs. Well, so (laughs) candid moment. My mom gave us some feedback on the podcast and said that we need to contextualize a bit more because not everybody understands our cultural references. Yeah, thank you for that. I'm not shaming you. I think it's good. So one of the things that we wanted to talk about is this kind of structure of people, product, and profit. And I will kick this off with a quote from the book. My old boss, Jim Barksdale, was fond of saying, we take care of the people, the products, and the profit in that order. It's a simple saying, but it's deep. Taking care of the people is the most difficult of the three by far, and if you don't do it, the other two won't matter. Taking care of the people means that your company is a good place to work. Most workplaces are far from good. As organizations grow large, important work can go unnoticed. The hardest workers can get passed over by the best politicians and bureaucratic process can choke out the creativity and remove all the joy. So deep. Yeah, that resonates. He also talks about how a good workplace is an end in itself, which I think is really interesting, although maybe not what we're talking about at this moment. But it's fascinating to me that that this book is kind of a how to build a company or how to be CEO. And clearly he thinks that building a good company is a goal in of itself, regardless of the work that you produce, um, which I think is a fascinating concept and not something I've necessarily thought a ton about. I always think about companies in terms of what they're actually producing. 
and not as kind of their own living breathing. Usually it's those those second two buckets. It's the profit because yeah. you always hear about your earnings and the actual product, the actual product that you're itself. making. Right. But it's all about people. And so most of what we're going to talk about is about people and the people that make up your company, leadership, and management. So I know, Meyer, you wanted to talk about management specifically. I did. You know, he actually spends the majority of the book talking about people as well. Mm -hmm. And he, he comes full circle at the end, really. He's so honest about his company, LoudCloud, which then turned into Opsware and then was later acquired by HP in this really large acquisition. $1.6 billion. $1.6 billion acquisition. But it sounds like he's in turmoil, you know, most of the time, just because he's being so candid about all of the hurdles that they're facing, whether it's that, you know, uh, they need to make their product better in a really short period of time or that the market wasn't quite where it was supposed to be. And he, at the end, when, when it ends up getting acquired, he goes on and starts his own venture capital firm and he says well the reason I knew that I created a good place to work is because all these people I worked with came and worked with me at my next thing right so I I like that he comes full circle on that he's not really just doling out advice and so because I believe his advice because (laughs) he has real case studies he's proven it I thought a lot about the section on management and what really entails being a good manager and the number one thing that he emphasizes is the importance of training. And so as I alluded to in our very first episode, I am on this very recent personal slash professional endeavor where I've been consulting on a bunch of different things, working on a few different projects here and there, and I'm no longer working with a company. So I have a new outlook on certain things and One of my decisions to go out on my own really stemmed from the fact that I didn't ever feel like I had good training or good opportunities for learning and development. Right. And I wanted to make sure that I was going to keep growing. And the interesting experience about my most recent company that I worked at, uh, a company that he talks about quite a lot, which has actually done miraculously in the market... I onboarded to that company at the very same time that my husband onboarded to a different tech company, which really emphasizes training and, you know, harnessing and motivating the staff and seeing the difference in our happiness there was just so indicative of how both of those companies approached training. And I think the reason that it's hard to be happy at your new job if you're not receiving training is because you don't know what the expectations are. Training on the most basic level helps set the framework for expectation. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've had friends who have talked about how when you start a new job, it takes six months to actually feel like you're hitting your groove. And a large part of that is because you actually need to be trained for the job that you're doing. And you're trained for a certain period of time and then you actually have to enact that and practice it in the workplace. And that can take a significant chunk of time. And time is a big thing that he talks about. Mm -hmm. He says one of the reasons that many companies don't invest in training is because they don't think that they have enough time. Right. But ultimately it ends up saving you a lot of time in the end. 
in the end when all of your new hires are on the same page and have a clear understanding of what their manager expects of them, not only within a 30-day time frame, but also six months down the road. It, it gives you tenants to be able to evaluate your direct reports on as well, which I think is important if you are a manager. And reducing turnover in the end saves a lot of time as well. Yeah, so the training section was really, really resonated with me. I know we had sort of discussed this a little bit earlier, and you were talking about the leadership section, which I think ties in really nicely to management and training. He also talks about how important it is to train his managers. So it's not just all new hires coming through the door. He has management training. He uh, very firmly believes on communication. Mm -hmm. Small startups, everybody does a little bit of everything, so it's easier to be on the on the same page, but as you start to grow and scale, it's a lot harder to figure out how to communicate. So he thinks, you know, one-on-ones are really important. I uh, actually wanted to talk about the one-on-ones because he, like I said before, this, a lot of parts of the book are really step-by-step solutions for how you should be doing things or how he has done things and seen success. And so it's like, what questions should we be asking people? What are the requirements for a strong HR department or for a strong ad sales manager, blah, blah, blah. So he gives a list of questions for one-on-ones, which I loved. And I'm going to read them now. So if we could improve in any way, how would we do it? What's the number one problem with our organization? Why? What's not fun about working here? Who is really kicking ass in the company? Whom do you admire? If you were me, what changes would you make? What don't you like about the product? The product being whatever your company produces. And in this case, it was a tech product, but it could be anything. What's the biggest opportunity that we're missing out on? And what are we not doing that we should be doing? Oh, and the last one. Are you happy working here? Those are loaded questions. Those are such difficult questions. And he kind of puts it on the role of the, um, not the manager, but their team member to, I mean, the manager should be asking these questions, but the team member should be coming to one-on-ones with a full agenda, like with, they should be owning most of the conversation, but these are questions that the manager should be asking their team in one-on-one interviews. Um, they're super loaded. Can you imagine having this conversation with someone once a week? Well, No, because another subject that he touches on (laughs) quite a bit is office politics. And I think that's something that you experience a lot in large organizations. So my experience has often been to really tailor any sort of feedback that you have that's critical because of office politics, which is sometimes a shame and sometimes it's there for a reason. It teaches you how to talk to people. Yeah, he definitely addresses politics and how companies, when they grow, honesty can often be one of the, what is it when you, it gets lost along the way? One of casualties. The, one of the That's what I'm casualties. reaching for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of the first casualties. But these are great questions. I mean, you could even ask your friends these things. You could ask your partner these things. Um, like, obviously, you're not going to ask, are you happy working here? <laughs> but, like asking about who you admire, like what changes you could be making, what are the big opportunities you would see for people. I mean, I think 
is a good list of questions to ask There may be always just also a good list of questions to ask yourself about whatever your current situation is. Absolutely. Because you I think it's hard be to be put on the spot these yes. to give an honest answer when one of your superiors asks these questions. But asking yourself, I think, really grounds you in your day-to-day. You could use the technique from El Luna's book, The Crossroads of Should and Must, and use the empty chair and face an empty chair and ask yourself these questions as if it's a meeting. I mean, I think that there would be a lot to get out of that. I love cross-pollinating self-help books. This is great. Know, look at us. It's going to be a whole chain reaction of self-help. Hopefully at the end, we're going to be perfect. <laughs> well, that's why we did this, yes. right? Embarking upon perfection. Yes. Um, so to transition in, a bit into leadership, the one role that he basically says that you cannot train for or be trained for is CEO. And you're CEO of your own of your own realm at this moment. I suppose. I don't currently <laughs> manage anyone. To be CEO. But I think it's it's interesting that training is such an important part of coming up the ranks in jobs, but there are, is a certain time in which the only training can be on the job and that's just the nature of leading a whole company or leading a whole division. He uses a lot of sports references. He says things like even if you had LeBron James teaching you everything there was to know about basketball in a classroom, you would suck when you got on the court. Exactly. Yeah. Cause so much about being a leader or a CEO is making hard decisions when there basically aren't any right decisions to make. There's just different choices. Right. Which and frankly, mom, like, if you don't know who LeBron James is, I can't help you. No, especially not now. So I thought that this, I, what I liked about this book was a lot of what he talks about leadership because that's something that I'm constantly trying to figure out how to be a better leader or what makes a good leader or how I can self-improve on those fronts because I don't know if it's something that comes totally naturally to me, but it's something that I value really highly and would think it's worth working at. So he defines leadership in a few ways. And one of the definitions that I found particularly kind of fun is from Secretary of State Colin Powell. But he says that leadership is the ability to get someone to follow you, even if only out of curiosity, Um, which I think is a really fun way to think about it. It's not really a business reference. It's not a management tip, but it's such a engaging way to think about trying to lead I, I don't know. I thought it was a nice way to frame it. But then there's also harder parts of being a leader. So he also defines what makes people want to follow a leader. And those are the ability to articulate the vision, the right kind of ambition, and the ability to achieve the vision. Which, for me, is just more food for thought. I mean, there's no, to use his analogy or his metaphor there's no silver bullet for any of these things but just in my working life it's very important to me to be able to develop these skills because I want to make the people that I work with feel like they're valued and they're being invested in and like they have support basically so he also talks a lot about in the talent sphere not just management but also hiring talent. And Mm -hmm. I thought that his approach to that 
at least the way he articulated it, was pretty unique. A lot of people have really great credentials. And what he really drives home is that there's no perfect VP. There's no perfect CEO. There's no perfect anyone. There's a perfect person for the problems we're experiencing or the situation that we're in or, you know, the, the issues that we might have to tackle going forward. He hires for strengths versus lack of weakness. Yes. Which that is a important distinction. It is. And he has this whole example of this sales guy that nobody wanted him to hire and he just kept coming back to him with with different explanations of basically how he would move the product even in the difficult circumstances that they were facing. And he was like, you know what? I'm the CEO. This is my decision. He has lots of moments like that where he's like, this is singularly my decision at this right. point. I'm the only person with enough information to make this decision. But so counterpoint for one moment, he has access to the best talent. I mean, I know that what he's talking about is at a time when the when Silicon Valley was basically, it was like the dot-com crash and his company was on the ropes. And so it was a difficult position, but let's face it, access to the best talent. They did have access to capital. It's always hard to hire the right people, but it's a little easier when you have all the best connections in the world and the ability to pay them really well. Yeah, actually, that brings up a good point that I thought about a lot too. If there is one critique, it's that he had a very unique set of circumstances. And one of them was that he had access to good talent. The other one was that he had capital. He talks a lot about hiring people through the framework of titles. Mm -hmm. And he uses two different examples of how to know when to give somebody a title to sort of edge them away from the competition. Right. And his business partner, Mark Andreessen, 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 he says, give them the title, give them the extra title, give them the senior. If they were a VP, bring them in as a senior. If they were senior VP, bring them in at a seat level, you know, just Mm -hmm. give them the extra title. It costs you nothing, but means a lot to them and could be the difference between them taking a competitive offer elsewhere And then he has this whole example from Mark Zuckerberg's school of thought from Facebook again, where Mark Zuckerberg brings everybody in at a flat level because he doesn't want to risk bringing somebody in at a higher level than somebody who's been working for Facebook, understands his products inside and out, and has done a great job for the organization Mm -hmm. because he wants to continue to reward the talent that's been there, that's been investing their time in building the Facebook products. And it gives more room for growth for people. It gives more room for growth as well. And they talk about these two schools of thoughts and kind of the one, again, it it comes back to what you just said. It's like whichever route a company chooses to follow still comes with the caveat that both Mark Andreessen and Mark Zuckerberg work for companies that people want to work for. Right. So they're just turning people away. They have the best talent there. Yeah. They attract top talent anyway. Right. So yeah, I agree with you. What do you think is the trait of the best leader you've ever had? Best manager you've ever had? Oh, that's actually, I've thought about this one a lot. 
So the best manager I ever had, it was actually very early on in my career, which is really lucky because I'd like to think that I took a lot of those traits and integrated them into the way that I manage people. Making yourself available is really, really huge. I think managers tend to get really busy and inundated and overwhelmed by work and can't possibly think about carving out enough time for Mm -hmm. their direct reports. And part of it's that's a training thing. And part of it is just communicating with them and making it feel like there isn't a wall between the two of you. Is this the same one who wrote you a recommendation letter? (laughs) Yeah, this was a really special manager. When I was leaving that job, he wrote the job that I was applying for a recommendation letter about me, even though he was going to be losing me as his talent. He was very special. But his, his ability to listen was so important because I think being a good listener as a leader, just one, gives you a lot of insight into... Usually, as you become more senior in traditional rankings, you're not executing anymore. So staying in Mm -hmm. touch with the the execution component, I think, is really major um, because things change. And so you're learning, in a sense, from people who are actually doing the more granular work. Mm -hmm. But also, it just makes you so much more approachable. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say listening skills were really big for me. How about you? Definitely empathy. So I thought that it wasn't going to be the same thing as yours when you started talking, but in the end, it kind of is the same. Yeah, Yeah, empathy. All my best managers have had a really high level of empathy, and it makes a big difference. Yeah, I mean, I've had more training, less training, more hands-on, less hands-on. There's been a total range, but I think that's the one uniting force between all of them. Yeah, that's a really good one. But then that also comes back to what he says where we talked about in the beginning of this episode, just like creating a place that people want to work. If you have empathetic leaders, then likely you have a positive culture. Yeah, completely. I'm not going to ask you about your worst. Don't ask me about my worst. I'm still censoring my high lows. I don't want to know. So there were lots of great lessons from this book, I think. We really loved learning about his approach to management and leadership tactics and about his take on harnessing talent Mm -hmm. and investing in talent. Did you have a favorite quote as we sort of wrap up here? Yes, I did. This is under chapter four, when things fall apart. This is kind of like a doomsday book for companies because his companies keep almost falling apart. He saves it every time, but it's interesting if you're at a company that is currently on a downswing, also an interesting read. And then title for this section of the chapter is CEOs should tell it like it is. So the quote goes even more stupidly. I thought that it was my job and my job only to worry about the company's problems Had I been thinking more clearly, I would have realized that it didn't make sense for me to be the only one to worry about it. For example, the product not being quite right, because I wasn't writing the code that would fix it. A much better idea would have been to give the problem to the people who could not only fix it, but who would also be personally excited and motivated to do so. Another example, if we lost a big prospect, the whole organization needs to understand why, so that we could together fix the things that were broken in our products, marketing, and sales process. 
If I insisted on keeping the setbacks to myself, there was no way to jumpstart that process. And this one, I think, is another thing that honestly, like, it applies to business and it also applies to life. If you're having a hard time at work, if you're struggling through a problem, reaching out to someone is the best way. And I think, as he mentions, going directly to the people who are going to be enthusiastic to help fix the problem is even better. Um, But same in life. If you're going through a hard time, reaching out to friends, there's nothing friends like more than helping try to make you feel better. So I can often, like if I'm not feeling super happy, I'm most likely to be quiet and like kind of go within myself. But the exact opposite is going to be a better way to feel better quickly. I like that. So that was that was my favorite. I also chose a quote about the psyche of a CEO. Mm-hmm. Because I listened to it on Audible, I can't tell you the chapter, but I can read the quote. That's, yeah. By far, the most difficult skill I learned as a CEO was the ability to manage my own psychology. Organizational design, process design, metrics, hiring, and firing were all relatively straightforward skills to master compared with keeping my mind in check. It's like the fight club of management. The first rule of the CEO psychological meltdown is don't talk about the psychological meltdown. (laughs) I highlighted this quote again, just because I think they relate a little bit where anytime you're leading any effort and charging forward, you tend to take on the burden and you know that that burden doesn't just cross over, doesn't just stop crossing over into your other spheres of your life. So, you know, the entire time that you're going through a difficult situation at work, I think anybody can relate. You tend to sort of bring it home. Mm -hmm. And the more you internalize it and the less you talk about it, the more likely it is to take over your entire life. So that's sort of the reason that that resonated with me. I think it's kind of a learning. He, He has a lot of good takeaways on, um, you know, we didn't talk at all about the fact that he does address his home life and how his work stresses impacted his relationships and his health and these things. We didn't talk at all about that. We didn't talk about that. But that's okay. It's a big thread. It's a, it can be a surprise if these people read the book. (laughs) It's true. We don't want to give it all away. Um, is there any other takeaway, like main takeaway you think is a good, I mean, you know my takeaway. He says the struggle is real. The The struggle struggle is really, 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 really real. Yeah, I think also for me it's the fact that a lot of the time what you're doing is not going to be successful and it's not going to feel great while you're doing it, but you have to keep moving forward and finding ways to to have progress and that that forward movement in and of itself is worthwhile and to treat people well. Treat people well. Treat people well is definitely the number one takeaway. Yeah. He also gives some good one-liners about starting businesses and becoming CEOs. And he says, there is glory in it, but most of the time you're terrified. So just a word to the wise. Yeah. Even though he's so successful, he says he felt like a good good leader like three days. Out of the entire eight years. Eight years. Yeah. So. The struggle is really, really, really real. Yeah. And be nice. Be nice. Always be nice. Always be nice. So he also mentioned some other management books. And I feel like the one that I'm dying to read out of it is Andy Grove's High Output Management. So I don't know if that's going to be our next on the on the podcast or if I'm just going to read it on the side. No, but we're definitely going to read it. He talks about Andy Grove all the time. Yeah. 
got to put it on the list. And then he also name checks Jim Collins, good to great, and the one minute manager or one minute manager. So those are some other good reads out of this, which I appreciate. Thanks for tipping us off. Yeah. Thanks. Keeping us moving. Anything else, Meyer? I think that's it for today. What should people do if they liked listening to this? If you liked listening to this episode, you may rate us accordingly on iTunes. And by accordingly, I mean five stars, obviously. Plus a nice comment. Plus a nice comment. You might as well, if you're already there. Comment on what you would like us to talk about. Yeah. Next. Yeah. Suggest some books. All right. Bye. Bye.